Welcome to the One Heart Podcast from Concordia University, St. Paul, where we share the stories at the heart of our CSP community. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the One Heart Podcast from Concordia University, St. Paul. I'm your host, Billy Schultz. Today's guest is Li Pao Zhang. Li Pao serves as the director of CSP's Center for Monk Studies, the only center of its kind in the entire world. Li Pao shares his personal journey growing up in Laos and then coming to America as a refugee. It's a fascinating personal story, and it's also a super insightful look at the richness of the Hmong culture and how the center is a really unique asset to CSP as well as to the Hmong community and even beyond. With that, I'm pleased to welcome Li Pao Zhang. Thank you for being with me today, Li Pao. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. I'm so glad to have you here. Um, would love to have you start sharing your story, um, talking about your your family history, your early years in Laos, um, your, your time as a refugee, and then coming uh, to the United States and what that was like. Sure. Yeah, well, my father was, um, well, I was born in, in Longqing, Laos, and Longqing, Laos was the headquarter of the CIA and of General Pao. Mm. And so it's the most secret-based, uh, military-based um, in that whole region. In fact, if you were to f- try to find that uh, town on any maps, uh, you wouldn't be able to find it because oh it's God. that secretive. And um, so I was born there in '66. My father served in the military when he was only 16 years old. Mm. And uh, so I pretty much grew up there um, in, in Long Gang. And then in 1975, uh, when the United States pulled out of Southeast Asia and Vietnam fell, and then eventually uh, Laos also fell to the communists, um, we were airlifted out of uh, the country of Laos. So my father was part of the special guerrilla unit. And the special guerrilla units was basically created by the United States CIA, mm-hmm. uh, trained and financed by the United States, basically. So the monks served as surrogate soldiers of the American Armed Forces uh, during the height of the Vietnam War because Laos was declared a neutral country. No foreign troops was allowed in the country of Laos. So instead of Americans sending in uh, troops uh, to try to contain communism in that whole region, they recruited the Hmong people to to help um, the Americans uh, uh, prevent communists from spreading into Southeast Asia. Because uh, the, some of you may have heard about the uh, what do you call it the um, the domino theory, right? So President Kennedy and others, and Eisenhower's and Johnson believed that Laos was a very strategic location, a strategic country, because it's a landlocked country. It's a middle sandwich between Thailand. China, uh, Vietnam, and Cambodia. And if Laos were to, were to fall, then that whole region, including India to the Philippines, Indonesia, all of that would turn red. Mm-hmm. So that's how the Hmong got involved in, in, in the war. And basically to rescue American pilots who were shot down um, from their bombing runs into North Vietnam, to guarding radar installations, as well as to engage the North Vietnamese army. Uh, in in combat, so they wouldn't be able to go down the southern part of uh, Vietnam to fight a bit against the Americans. So my father uh, was an integral part of that. I grew up in that environment. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty much grew up in that environment. So after the United States pulled out, 
you know, uh, they sent three planes to evacuate them all. And uh, only 1,600 uh, individuals were uh, evacuated out of Laos. And so wow. my family was among one of those 1,600 uh, that was evacuated into Thailand, uh, Nampong uh, Camp, which is a former United States Marine installation. And so we stayed there for, you know, from May until November, and then we were transferred to uh, uh, what seemed to be the largest uh, refugee camps in Thailand, Ban Vinai. So we were the first 100 families transferred over. And it's kind of interesting that because of the, the, that refugee camp was so close to the border of Thailand and Laos that many of the people didn't want to go. And plus, it was uh, a uh, cemetery. And so it was uh, the, the first one of the families were all Christians. And so we're all like, you know, uh, we're not afraid. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our God will protect us. And so uh, first one out of the families decided we're going to go. And uh, so we were that, that first one. And then later on, uh, uh, after the United States started uh, to bring uh, uh, many high-ranking Vietnamese of, uh, officer, officials to the United States as refugees, uh, after they resettled all the ref, uh, all the uh, high-ranking Vietnamese official, Vietnamese and Cambodian officials, uh, ten thousand numbers were available, and mm-hmm. so uh, we were among the ten thousand that uh, uh, got to come to America uh, wow. as, as refugees. So uh, October twenty second, nineteen seventy six, was when we uh, came to the United States, and we were uh, uh, sponsored by Mennonite Church. In, hmm. in Morgantown, Indiana, Bean Blossom, Morgantown, Indiana, <laughs> <laughs> small town. Uh, they put us in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> oh my goodness! And I remember my first experience with snow. <laughs> you know, because during the during this time of the year, you know, uh, you started to see snowflakes sometime, right? And I thought, oh yeah, there's beautiful flowers. You know, what I mean, and uh, uh, it started to come. I mean, we started to see snowflakes in November or so, and and in Laos during this time, uh, you have a lot of flowers flown around, you know, mm. from in the air. So I thought it was snow, but it stayed and got colder and colder. So my first <laughs> yeah. experience was snow. Wear a jacket and all that. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's, you know, uh, so that's a little bit about my family, you know, coming to America. Didn't know uh, what was, what life would be like here in America. We came with just the clothes on our back. Uh, and, uh, but we took a chance, my parents took a chance, you know, and, uh, for other people, I think the difference between immigrants and refugees is that immigrants, while they were in their own country, they dreamed about coming to America. They said, if I go to America, this is what I'm going to do. As refugees, we have no choice but to leave our country. And so while we are here physically, our mind was still back home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I know that when our name first came up for sponsorship, uh, my dad didn't want to come. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the second time, and my uncle who came here already, Washington, Iowa, he was sponsored by a, fam- a church in Washington, Iowa. And uh, so he finally convinced my father to say, you know, come to America, come to America. So uh, he made the decision to come. And I think it's the greatest decision. America is the greatest country in the world, mm-hmm. you know. You can be anything. You can, you can do anything. You can be anything you want, uh, <laughs> and uh, and that's a message I try to tell a lot of you know young people. And I said, we lost a country that was not really ours because 
even though the Hmong were citizens of the country of Laos, we are a minority in the country of Laos, and we were treated like a minority. We were treated like a foreign a, a visitor. So when we came to America, we lost a country that was not really ours, but we came to America, we gained the world. Wow. With the American passport, you can travel anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can be, I always say, you can be, if you're born in America, you can be the president of the United States of America. Uh, and so where else can you, uh, what, what other countries can you do that? Mm-hmm. Only here in America. So we're fortunate to be here uh, and uh, take advantage of the opportunity to also give back to the community, to the country that really uh, took us in, opened its door and took us in. So, yeah. Oh, what a beautiful story. So then how did you get from Indiana uh, up here to Minnesota? <laughs> yeah. You know, I have a, I have an uncle. He's the first Hmong, to, Hmong refugee to arrive here uh, in, in Minnesota. I have two uncles that came here first. Okay. Hodang. Uh, uh, he worked for uh, USAID, mm. and uh, so his boss lived in Minnesota. And so when he heard about uh, the Hmong uh, exodus, he basically petitioned and brought her down here to Minnesota around uh, Thanksgiving, around this time of the year as well. Mm. So he was the first one to settle here. And then my other uncle, uh, Ling Vang, uh, he uh, basically, at the, through the advice of one of his uh uh, colleagues who also worked with the CIA, but part of the Thai, uh, he's a Thai, and he came here uh, to study as a foreign exchange student at a Kennedy High School in Bloomington. Oh, wow. And so uh, my uncle asked, and, and during the first resettlement uh, process, they wanted to resettle people that worked directly with the Americans, you know, and if they were to stay behind, uh, uh, that may cause harm on on them, and so they settled the people that spoke English. They settled the people that uh, were closely with the American first. And so he said, "You know, where where should I go?" And so his friend uh, Pinoy Noi Suicha said, "Go to Minnesota." And so he took a chance and came to Minnesota. And it was sponsored by the Presbyterian uh, Church uh, and the Lutheran Church. Uh, and so they settled not far from here. It's in the Rondo neighborhood, mm. Liberty Plaza. Okay. Yeah. And so he was, he worked directly with the CIA. So people knew him. He was a key leader in the community. So he first came here and then everybody else followed. So I think that's one of the things about the Hmong community is that we're not an individualist society. We're a collective society. Mm-hmm. We go where our leaders are. <laughs> and so they followed. And so in 1979, you know, my family's, my, my mother's side of the family uh, were all here mm-hmm. and uh, including her brothers and her, her, parents and so we decided to move to minnesota in 1979 and at that time there were only 2,000 Hmong people here in minnesota wow and i still talk about the fact that we we didn't we couldn't find any food that we're familiar with Hmm. at all and so we were buying uh canned bamboo shoots and other canned products from and including rice from a thai lady who was selling out of her garage in little canada Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, but eventually our family formed a co op and the Lao Mong uh, Oriental Market. And that, that was the first Hmong uh, Oriental store uh, here in, in Minnesota. Wow. And so they bought a truck, drove down to uh, Chicago, bought retail. And they came back and sold retail. Wow. <laughs> they didn't know about the concept of wholesale at all at that time. Uh. Uh, so it was all, all here in Minnesota. So I pretty much grew up here in Minnesota, you know, went to school in North End Elementary School. When we came up here, 
they damped uh, me. Uh, my English was, they said my English was good. So they integrated me into mainstream. Mm. Uh, and so I, uh, and all of the people with, who were struggling with English as a second language were being t- uh, bused over to Highland Park. Okay. And that's what the, they call it, the TESOL one school. <laughs> mm. And then all of us who they damned, our English was good enough to be integrated into mainstream. We were all scattered, but I, uh, I pretty, I attended uh, North End Elementary School. And I think at that time I was probably the only mom in that school because I, as far as I remember, I'm, I was the only one. <laughs> oh my goodness, wow. <laughs> uh, so now if you go to North End, if you go to, and then eventually to Cleveland Junior High and, and Johnson High School and then Como Park, right? So okay. many of us lived in the projects and because we're low income, we're poor. And uh, our parents are getting an education, uh, going to school and uh, getting job skills. And so remember at Cleveland Junior High and on the east side of St. Paul, there were only like, 30 or so of us Hmm. But Now, if you go there, you know, almost 70% Hmong. 70%, wow. Yeah, including Johnson High School. I mean, you have a sizable Hmong population there, sizable Karen population there. And uh, so after my father found a job, they kicked us out of public housing. So I ended up graduating from Como Park High School. Okay. So one year they gave me a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, A, uh, what do you call those? Um, award you know uh hall of fame award mm. <laughs> and i said you know johnson should really be getting me that award instead of como because i was only here one year <laughs> i spent most of my time uh at johnson high school so oh, but, yeah so that's that's my journey to in, uh, coming to minnesota uh and i think it's always you know uh, it's it's amazing uh yeah to see the changes uh mm-hmm. From then to now. Now we have over 103,000 Hmong in Minnesota. The largest uh, concentration of Hmong in the United States and the largest urbanized Hmong population in the United States. All of us are in the seven county metro area. Wow, that's phenomenal. Yeah. And you you got to be on the front end of that. that Yeah, to see see all of this change happening, you know, to see all the the changes and, uh, and to see all the progress made by the community. Uh, and I told people that when I was done, and and we talked about educational my career and education the journey. <laughs> you know, um, I I went to the in high school. I was always listening to shortwave radio, mm. and I, I got myself a shortwave radio. So I was watching, I was listening to broadcasts from throughout the world, oh, and cool. uh, particularly. Uh, Voice of Free China broadcast from Okeechobee, Florida, <laughs> <laughs> and Voices of America. I was listening. I was fascinated by that, you know. And my parents would, you know, again, we would, uh, they would all be uh, sleeping, and I'll be like listening to my shortwave radio. And so I wanted to, you know, after high school, I said I wanted to explore the world. I wanted to make my millions and travel the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I applied. Uh, to the to Concordia University, to the University of Minnesota, to uh, some of the community colleges as well, and Concordia actually accepted me first. Oh, awesome! Uh, so I came here, I registered, and then got my fin- my financial aid packages, and then the University of Minnesota uh, sent me uh, a letter of acceptance. Then, oh. uh, 
So I looked at the financial aid package and concluded his financial aid package <laughs> after I paid off. And then coming from um, <clears throat> a low-income family, uh, money was key, right? And mm -hmm. so at that time, uh, I knew about Concordia University because Concordia, many of the uh, community functions were actually held here at Concordia. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I, I've been to the campus uh, multiple times. Uh, and uh, at that time, Concordia was very much open to the community. Community came and used the uh, the uh, auditorium, beautiful auditorium for mm -hmm. community meetings. In fact, General Powell's been here many times yeah. hosting events. And so I knew about I knew about Concordia, and so that's why I applied to Concordia, and also applied to University of Minnesota. But my uh, my high school counselor didn't believe me. I mean, my high school counselor basically said I was not college material, mm -hmm. and so recommended me to go to Saint Paul Technical College at that time. But I defied that order <laughs> and applied because my parents, you know, I would be the first generation to uh, mm -hmm. go to college. And so my parents and my uncle and other family members would say, go to college, go to college. We had no idea, no concept of what college is. And so uh, that's why I applied. And, and I got accepted in Concordia, and then, but decided to go to the University of Minnesota of financial aid package after mm -hmm. I paid off everything. I have $2,000 left over. And in 1985, $2,000 left over is a lot of money. <laughs> so I went to the University of Minnesota and then I to pursue my uh, a business degree. I wanted to go into the Carson School of Management. But mm -hmm. then one year, uh, I had a chance during my junior year, I had a chance to uh, go to Washington, D.C. to uh, during the summer to work for uh, United States Senator Carl Levin of Michigan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh and here I was, I was the only Hmong on Capitol Hill. Hmm. And I said, this is the most powerful place in the world, the power, most powerful country in the world. How come I'm the only Hmong here? <laughs> and and I was working on, on you know, cases like Nelson Mandela, trying to free Nelson Mandela, hmm. writing to the South African government, writing to corporations to boycott South Africa for locking up Nelson Mandela. And so I was working on deals like this. Uh, I was delivering confidential documents to the on behalf of the United States Senator to the Pentagon every night. Wow. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was tasked with also bringing him lunch every day in committee. <laughs> I'm like, how can you eat a Reuben sandwich uh, every day consistently? <laughs> that was my task. <laughs> and then I came back and switched my major from... Um, business to political science mm. and so i was talking to uh, a group of students uh, charter school students uh, yesterday uh, community peace uh, charter school and i was telling the students that you know you can change my you can change your major you know you don't have to be stuck with with uh, say i'm going to go to college i'm going to focus on this mm. and halfway through you can change your major i changed my major so that's that's something that you know again um came back and then I wrote to legislators uh, local here and said, I'd love to learn more about the state system, hmm. political system. I'll be more than happy to work free for you. And uh, so Representative Andy Dawkins, who represented this area before, he wrote back and said, Li Pao, I don't have, uh, I, I don't have a job, but I need your help. And so I started doing the community organizing for him in Frogtown. Oh, cool. This was in 88. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and at that time, I didn't realize, you know, the amount of Hmong people that was living in Frogtown. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like a block, you have four or five families. I'm like, wow. 
Um, and so, and then eventually I ended up working for, um, as a legislative aide for State Senator Joe Bertram, who represented the Pinksville area. Um, so I worked there a while and then decided to go into the community uh, and so um, worked as a sector director of the Hmong Youth Association, first working as a counselor, okay. helping students, guiding students, uh, do career exploration programming for them, and then became the executive director a year later, and then became the director of Momoka Partnership, uh, director of state council, I mean, the, the director of the uh, state council in Asian Pacific Minnesota. So I worked on uh, expand, expansion of charter schools, uh, worked on the welfare reform, uh, on a variety of issues with under uh, Governor Arnie Carson's. Mm. And, uh, so that's my background. And I had a chance to, you know, hear Concordia. Kind of interesting that Concordia posted a director of uh, government and community relations. Okay. And so I applied for that and I became the director of the uh, government and community relations at Concordia University <laughs> in 1997. So I came here in 1997. Things that I worked on, you know, again, build relationship with, uh, build relationship with uh, the community. Work closely with Lexham, the Emmy Tricos of the world, mm -hmm. the Trico families of the world. Working closely with Lexham Community Council, build relationship with policymakers, and that's why I, I was able to, you know, President Holtz was talking about, you know, we would love to be able to train. Um, and this is based on the 1990 census, where 30 percent of the student population were Hmong, but only two percent of staff and fa uh, staff and also teachers were Hmong. Wow. And so Dr. Ho said we would love to be able to train uh, teachers for the school districts. And so I said, why why are we still talking? Let's let's get some funding going. Let's get it going. And yeah. so I uh, through my relationship at the Capitol, I sat down with us. Senator Sandy Pappas, who still represents this area. Yeah. Uh, Senator Sandy Pappas and the man in Tenza who represents this area and got together and we put a bill together uh, to ask for a million dollars to start the C program. Mm. So the Southeast Asian Teacher Licensure Program. So I started yeah. that program. <laughs> that was, <laughs> yeah, like, was that 1998 that that launched? Yeah, that was a 1990s. Yeah, 98 or so. Yeah. You know, and so we got a million dollars and and so, you know, Roberta Kaufman was the dean of the College of Education at that time. And uh, so quickly put that program together. And now we, it's good to see that the program still exists. You know, you still have uh, students being trained through that program. Money's still being allocated from mm -hmm. the state legislature for that program. I was also working on signage along uh, 94. Uh, you know, at that time, St. Thomas was the only uh, higher educational institution of choice. <laughs> for okay. signage along 94. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I utilized my uh, political connections, actually testified in front of, of MnDOT, uh, <laughs> uh, working with uh, Skip Humphrey at that time, who was the AG, Attorney General's. Uh, and uh, because Skip and I, we know, we know each other really well. And so I was using that side of it, you know, the political pressure from the AG's office. It's like talking about equity here right yeah. <laughs> equality you can't just have one university have signage on long 94 and you by here we have hamlin we have you know uh, st cat uh, college of st catherine we have concordia you know and we have augsburg over there you know so to be fair you got to put more signs yeah put more signs <laughs> up you know so i was working on that as well oh, <laughs> 
Uh, and so I did a lot of lobbying behind the scenes. And eventually, you know, after I left, I'm glad that they, the state became wise and gave us signage along, you know, uh, yes. along 94. <laughs> uh, and then uh, also working with uh, other community groups and leaders like the Midway Chamber of Commerce. They mm. put me on the board and I said, we're an integral part of uh of, of Hamlin Midway right here. Yeah. So those were the things that I was working on, even trying to negotiate uh, getting the uh, uh, public cities uh, waterworks uh, to allocate land for us, to let us have the waterworks building. Yeah. I was working on negotiating that to get it, make it free because <laughs> uh, they were going to connect Imill Road uh, through our campus mm-hmm. to 94. And if, if they were going to go ahead with that, we would lose our baseball field. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I'll say that's not going to happen. We're landlocked here. So if you're going to do that, give us the waterworks building in exchange because they were looking for a new location. And so I was working on that, too. That was fun. I mean, <laughs> uh, working with uh, Councilmember Jay Benedoff at that time, uh, trying to get that through. And then I know that uh, even Senator Norm Coleman at that time was mm. the uh, was the mayor of, of St. Paul. That's so right. Norm Kilman yeah. and I, we know each other. We go back a long ways. Um, and so trying to utilize my political connections to for the benefit of Concordia. <laughs> <laughs> and during that time, I then um, I got appointed by President Bill Clinton. And uh, eventually, so I served in his, in his administration. Uh, wow. And then also was appointed by Jesse Ventura to serve on the Met Council. Okay. So if you look at University Avenue, uh, the light rail there, I was the Mm -hmm. co-chair of the light rail corridor coordinating committee, which put the light rail on University Avenue. Wow. (laughs) And so I was doing some work there as well. But uh, I left to work on my doctorate in Hamlin. I got a full ride from uh, the Bush Fellowship. Mm. Uh, And uh, so after I came back, uh, I, I left Concordia, went to serve as the President and CEO of the Urban Coalition, the first non-African American president and CEO of a civil rights organization. Wow! <laughs> and then I was tapped by Mayor Alti right back and my colleagues to serve as a to go serve as a director of housing policy and development for the city of Minneapolis. I had over sixty staff, eighty million budget, eighty million dollar budget. So I was instrumental in crafting the Northside Partnership, which mm-hmm. basically brought jobs, educational opportunities, and business opportunities to the North Minneapolis area, uh, and allocations of $10 million for our Affordable Housing Trust Fund. Because of my work at the Met Council, I was a chair of the Liverpool Communities Committee. Uh, and uh, so did a lot of policy work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's also really interesting, going back to the center, was that... Um, in 1997, when I was here, President Holtz and I were talking about uh, the need to start something, right, uh, mm-hmm. to work with the Hmong community. And we talked about the, the concept of, you know, he said, if we we're going to do something, what should it look like? I said, just imagine the Smithsonian Museum. Mm-hmm. But you walk in, you learn everything about a people and a culture and the history of those people. Uh, and so that kind of, you know, of quiet down until I left. And then I was part of a chatter group of, of monk scholars, and they were saying, you know, we needed institutions to collect, to preserve, and to teach, you know, uh, our history, our culture, and language. Uh, so I called Dr. Hose up, and I, I said, maybe, you remember 1997, we're talking about this? I think this may be a right time. 
And uh, so he went to the uh, president's council and uh, got some money. <laughs> and uh, so he said, what should we call this thing? And I said, call it the Center for Home Studies. Uh, and by doing that, we didn't realize that we were actually um, pioneers in, the, in this field yeah. because before that, there was no field of home studies. And uh, so uh, he said, who should run this thing? And I said, bring Dr. Gilly from Australia to run mm. this thing. Uh, because I was happy at the city, you know, I was making a lot of money, <laughs> have a lot of responsibilities, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and it was it was it was my you know uh, it was my training right yeah policy because my my undergraduate is political science my graduate degree is public administration and uh, so during that and then um, eventually. Uh, Dr. Gailey backed out because his wife didn't want to move from Australia to Minnesota. I don't blame her, the weather, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dr. Hose took me out to dinner. Marvin Swamy, who was mm. the, on the President's Council, he was the chair of the President's Council. They took me out to uh, uh, dinner a couple of times and said, you're the person that we're looking for because to start something like this, we need somebody with credibility in the community, right? And somebody that understands us because you've been here before, mm-hmm. like in Korea, you know, the system and the institutions and people here. And also you're, you're a Christian. Okay? Yeah. And so uh, we, I, we think you're the one that we, uh, uh, that, that we're looking for, you know? And so finally they convinced me to come and uh, <laughs> from uh, the city to, to here. So from being, uh, a department of about uh, sixty to a department of one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> starting something so from I, scratch you know, too. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's also interesting that during that time, you know, uh, President Hose had a conversation with me. I think the enrollment for Hmong students at that time was like twenty five. Uh, okay. You know, so President Hose said, "What can we do to increase the enrollment?" And at that time, we were declining enrollment. You know, so I think the Center for Hmong Studies was a way to attract Hmong enrollment uh, yeah. to Concordia. And uh, so he said, how, how can we increase this to 50? And I said, well, hire a Hmong recruiter. Mm-hmm. So because we have the center here, now that we just established the center, now we need a, a, a recruiter that targets the Hmong community. That's how yeah. you can bring people in. Uh, but when I started the, the center, the first thing that I did was I looked at the mission statement. Mm. Uh, of Concordia, to prepare students for thoughtful and informed living, right? Mm-hmm. For dedicated service to God and humanities, for enlightened care of God's creations, all within the context of the Christian gospel, right? Yeah. How do you prophesize without prophesizing? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the other thing. You know, so I said, how do we make, how do we do, how do we go about doing that, right? And so the way to do that is to say, okay, uh, enrollment is key. Uh, the need to educate and, and inform our our uh, learners, right, mm-hmm. to be uh, to serve society, humanity, and society in in a in a uh, uh, respectful and in, in an understanding way. Then let's look at how do we bring people to Concordia? How do we make the Concordia the place of choice, educational institutions of choice for students? Mm-hmm. So. That's what I started to think about that. And so, okay, we want to make Concordia University an institution of choice for Hmong as well as non-Hmong who wants to learn about the Hmong history, mm-hmm. culture, and language. Making Concordia University the place to go to for scholars, 
researchers, media, business, and government institutions on one really topic and issue. So that yeah. continues to be the number one issue right now too, as well, because because anything that's related to the Hmong community, the media automatically calls here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they know you. You have uh, so much credibility and and recognition. Um, I think what most most recently you were you were talking about the. Uh, the 2020 census, if I recall, right? Yes, yes. And so anything that's related to the Hmong community, they call us. And then to enrich the lives of graduating students uh, by expanding their knowledge about the Hmong language, culture, and history. So yesterday I was uh, lecturing uh, for the DPT, Doctorate in Physical mm. Therapy Program. And I said, you know, um, it's important to, to understand that if you your goal is to stay in the Midwest, you're going to encounter patients from our community. Mm-hmm. It's important for you to understand the history and the culture and the religious beliefs yeah. uh, because 60% of the Hmong are still animists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so if you think about treatments for, for ailments, you know, the Hmong community, the Hmong community, we have a 5,000 year old history. We've mm-hmm. only been here 47 years, right? Almost 47 yeah. years. Who should I listen to? Should I listen to... Or should I adhere to a 5,000-year-old practice? Or should I listen to a 47-year-old practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so most likely people will gravitate towards the 5,000 because that's what they've been doing, you know, to cure ailments and and rely on the beliefs, you know. So those are things that, you know, uh, try to enrich our, our student population with the language and culture and and in uh, and, and our history. So we went about, you know, organizing the international conference for our students. So it's free for our students here, but mm-hmm. for students outside of Concordia, they have to pay a fee. And mm-hmm. uh, we get about, uh, we've capped it at 500 because that's the only capacity that we can handle. So we were supposed to do our eighth international conference, but the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. So we're still waiting for the eighth international conference <laughs> to relaunch the eighth international conference. We also launched a Hmong studies minor. At that time, Concordia University was the institution of higher education that offers a minor in Hmong studies. Mm-hmm. Nobody else, right? And we are still the only center for Hmong study in the world. You yeah. know, and that's why we attract people from throughout the world here, not only just locally, but internationally. Uh, and start, and we started an archival and museum collections, and that attracts a lot of community groups coming yeah. to Concordia, uh, college groups, high school groups, and so this time of the year, uh, New Year, Hmong New Year celebration. So okay. I'm getting a lot of requests to go and speak, uh, a lot of groups that wanted to come to Concordia to visit the the center. So, so that's something that you know. Again, we continue to do, and in fact, I'm I'm having a I'm getting a um, I'm doing an interview with the Associated Press tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> About the Hmong New Year and the significance of the Hmong New Year because November is, November, the Thanksgiving holiday is when the Hmong New Year started. Okay. Uh, but we have Hmong New Year happening now throughout the uh, United States. Okay. And so Associated Press wanted to interview me about that. Uh, and, you know, so interviews like that, visiting schools uh, and uh, tell. And it's great that, you know, the admission office and I, uh, Victoria Tao and I are joining force uh, because she can talk about Concordia and then she will bring me. And then I talked about uh, my professor role 
Mm-hmm. You know, how do we, what do I do? How do I go about supporting students? What was it like in the classrooms? You know, and what are the, you know, the, the professors that are here? What are their backgrounds and all that stuff? So I give yeah. my background information. So that that's kind of helpful. But yeah, right now, uh, again, uh, continue to advise and support the, the Vong Club, uh, visiting schools, uh, continue to digitize and catalog our collections that mm-hmm. we have. Um, and uh, fulfilling speaking engagement <laughs> requests. Uh, like Ramsey County wanted me to go speak, University of Minnesota, Ramison, Rasmussen Colleges. Mm. And so get a lot of these uh, requests from outside uh, just to talk. So so that's that's uh, what, we, what, what we're doing now. And, and uh, it's busy. <laughs> yeah, very busy. What, what, what to you is, is so, I mean, obviously it's your, your culture identity and, and your mm. family history and everything. Um, but, but why is it so important to preserve Hmong history and culture? What's the kind of the enduring value of that? Do you think? Yeah. You know, I always tell people that, um, you know, when I, when I first came here and I said, okay, we have a whole generations of people that were uh, policymakers, uh, a hi- history maker, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that are aging and are dying. Yeah. And so it's really important. I mean, we just lost a colonel this weekend. And there's okay. only a handful of colonels that's left. Um, and so uh, when they passed on, they take away their history, mm-hmm. right? the history, historical knowledge. Um, and I said, you know, when I came here, my what I wanted to do was really collect the stories of these people, yeah. collect the documents that are held by these people, collect the photographs that are held by not only just Hmong, but non-Mong who served with the Hmong people in the country of Laos. Yeah. We wanted to uh, collect historical evidence. Yeah. If you don't have historical evidence, we can talk about the relationship between the Hmong and the Americans during the secret war of Laos. If we don't have historical evidence, it's folk tales. Mm. And I don't want our history to be just folk tales. Yeah. So the things that we collect now, you know, uh, from whether it's an artifact to a documents, to a photograph, to a story, oral history a collection. Uh, we're doing this for the next two generations because this generation, they're living it now. Yeah. <laughs> so for them, it doesn't have value, right? I mean, just like many of the Americans who served in the Hmong in Laos as pilots, they sent me a whole bunch of pictures and they said, my children don't really care about this stuff anymore. Wow. I'm, I'm afraid mm. that if after I die, they'll just toss it out, right? Mm. And so I think we wanted to send it to you and if this is your history, you know, and these photographs contained uh, some, a mother and a father and a grandma and grandpa of somebody. And uh, so we want to give it to you and it belongs to the community. And so I use my social media platform sometimes to uh, post pictures and say, who know, do who do you know in this picture? Yeah. And it's amazing the amount of people that respond throughout the world. <laughs> they say, oh, yeah, that's my uncle. Or that's my grandpa. And I said, what's the name? Where is he now? And say, well, he's just passed away, you know. And uh, But thank you for this picture. It's, it's very historic and very iconic for our family. And to hear something like that, right? Or to have mm-hmm. a picture of, uh, we have a picture of a CMA, uh, LCMS pastor who retired, uh, there's a photograph of him and all of his cousins uh, when they were really kids, small kids in the 60s. 
And uh, so I posted that and somebody got it a hold of, uh, sent it to him. And he made a visit from Florida all the way here to Minnesota oh <laughs> to visit and, and to start helping me identify this is this person, that person, this person is here in the Twin City, that person passed away and all that stuff, Goodness. you know, and he was an LCMS, a Mount LCMS pastor. Wow. Uh, and so to me, that that brings me joy, right, mm-hmm. to be able to, to share things like this to the community. Uh, and so it's important because it's about your history. It's about yes. your identity. And it's about really who you are. And we all know that, you know, research has shown that an individual who knows their history and culture, they does better in all aspects of life. Mm-hmm. Right? It allows them to see the world through the eyes of others as well. Right. Yes. When you learn about yourself, you learn about others. When you learn about others, you learn about yourself. Yes. And I think Dr. Host um, says it really well. He says, just to know one culture, it's like walking around with your eye, one eye cover. Hmm. That's the, <laughs> that's the president's whole uh, way of, of articulating that. But to know yourself is to know others, and to know others is to know yourself. And so, uh, I think that it's really important. But also, we 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 became the Center for Hmong Studies at Concordia University, became the the source of historical knowledge, and and and, and for the Hmong community. Uh, and whether it's a it's a textile piece, uh, uh, because those are vintage, they don't make them them anymore. Mm-hmm. And we have some collections here, or whether it's uh, archival uh, materials. Uh, and so, uh, a CIA operative actually worked with uh, closely with the Hmong. Uh, he just called me up the other day and said, "Do you know?" When the, the Hmong uh, moved from Nampong to Bambina refugee camps, and I was able to pull it out, and as I hear, and uh, here's the date, and this is the number of families that were transferred over, uh, the first batch of people to be transferred over, uh, and so we maintain some really important historical documents here, uh, and historical cultural documents here as mm-hmm. well, uh, and it's I, I tell the student here that. We exist for you. Uh, and then the second piece is we exist for the community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the third piece is we exist for society. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you start from here up, uh, yeah. from here up, because, the, and I, I tell students, take advantage of it, you know, take advantage. Some of those who, who uh, came through the center, they were just, they were just wow by it. Uh, sometimes the Chusa, you know, in the past, the Chusa club, the Hmong, uh, uh, Unity, uh, Concordia Mo Unity Student Association, and they would borrow some of the artifacts. They would okay. borrow the mannequins. They would borrow the clothing for fashion show uh, and uh, because you can't find it anywhere. Oh. So we have people from outside come and say, can you, you want to sell those? I say, no, uh, it's archival material is vintage, mm-hmm. <laughs> vintage material. And uh, that's why they want it. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, they can't worth, find worth it something anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> Because they can't find anywhere else. But I think what's what's important for, for people to know is um, there are 103,000 Hmong here in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. We have the largest Hmong population here in the United States. Uh, we have the largest urbanized Hmong population in the United States. As Representative Saitel said, this is the Hmong capital of the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and that, you know, uh, we are 
everywhere, right? We are everywhere. I always tell people that if you go to Michigan and you eat at a Chinese or Japanese restaurant, it's owned by Mong. Wow. Uh, they're known for uh, their uh, restaurant business. <laughs> and if you buy flowers from C- uh, this time of the year and it's from Seattle, you buy Hmong flowers because they dominate the flower market. And if you uh, buy organic produce locally here, it's probably from the uh, Monk Farm in on Highway 52. Yes, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> Hafa Farm, Monk Market Farmers Association. And if you eat uh, strawberry uh, strawberries at this time of the year and it's from California, you're eating Monk strawberries because they dominate 70% of the strawberry market. Oh and if you go to the farmer's market here, you know, 60% of the growers are Hmong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are everywhere. And we have five charter schools here. We have seven Hmong elected official uh, at the Minnesota State Legislature. Um, and so uh, we are very, uh, I would say, connected, uh, community-oriented, uh, supporting each other. When I need something, I go to the state legislature and most likely I'll get it <laughs> because of that relationship. But we are a 5,000-year-old culture. I mean, we originated out of China 5,000 years ago. When the Chinese moved into China, uh, the Hmong was already living uh, mm. in China already. So uh, we were credited with being the first to cultivate wet rice, the first to forge metal into weapons. We were the most complex society 5,000 years ago until we lost the war. So... Uh, but the other that's important, you know, I, I lecture uh, for the uh, world religion class just most recently. And I said, you know, 60 percent of the Hmong are still animists, 40 mm-hmm. percent uh, Christians. Uh, and so even majority of the students here at Concordia are animists. Mm. Uh, they're not Christians, you know. So but Concordia University, you know, as we tell the students, we're very welcoming. You know, I don't care mm-hmm. what faith I mean, you belong to. Uh, and we have a chapel there. If you want to attend the chapel, you can go to the chapel. <laughs> and uh, and but at the same time, you're free to choose what you will what you believe in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you will learn about the Christian faith. I mean, like for example, my my Hmong culture and society class that I offer as part of the minor here at Concordia. Uh, we talk about the old faith, and then we talk about the new faith. You know how mm-hmm. how Jesus found the Christ. Uh, how Jesus found the Hmong people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the missionaries went to Laos and their intention was to go and do outreach in the Khmer and the Kamu village, the Kamu of the indigenous people of Laos. But on the way, they got caught in a major storm. And so they ended up staying in a Hmong village. Wow. And uh, in the end, uh, the missionaries, uh, Ted Andronov, started to uh, basically uh, share the good news with uh, uh, the, that village. And uh, that village then in turn became con- uh, converted to Christianity. The whole region became Christians. Hmm. And uh, and that's part of my family. Uh, wow. And uh, Pastor family as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they were the first. My family were the few first to, to become Christian in, in the country of Laos. Amazing. Uh, oh. So it just started out small like that. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just sharing the good news, you know? And so I think God didn't want Ted Andronov to to forget about the Hmong village Mm -hmm. (laughs) and purposely to say, you're going to stay here for a whole week. Oh, Uh, amazing. uh, (laughs) And started to share the news and converted the, you know, uh, Boya Tao, who is a shaman, who was a shaman in that village. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and after he became uh, a Christian, he brought the whole family village and all the village around the village. And that that movement was called the People's Movement uh, because it brought a whole bunch of people. Over a thousand people became Christians within that uh, couple months uh, mm. period. So, yeah. Well, that's phenomenal. So as we wrap up our time today, uh, if people want to come to visit uh, on, on campus and, and visit the Hmong Center, um, it's in the basement of the Library Technology Center. Yes. Uh, you can't miss it. Uh, fantastic uh, timeline display as well as the artifacts are there, mm-hmm. um, archives, things like that. Um, when is it open and can people just drop in or do they need to schedule a time to uh, to come visit? Yeah, like I said, like I mentioned, uh, the center is Li Pao. So, <laughs> so sometimes I'm off campus, but I always encourage people just come down because I think the the timeline and all of that, uh, it's outside of the artifact room, right? Mm-hmm. And we have some artifacts outside as well. So stop by and check it out. And then uh, I'm usually down there as well. I have two offices, right? I have two offices. <laughs> so I have one office in, in, in the administration building, two doors from the president's office. And then, so I try to rotate back and forth, but I spend most of my time at the Center for Mom Studies, you know, either digitizing uh, or cataloging or just meeting guests, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the key, like for example, I was down there one day and, uh, uh, the son of a minister from the country of Laos. Um, he just walked by. I'm like, I think I know you. <laughs> <laughs> so I can drop in, people drop in like that, right? Or or the uh, one of the professors from uh, uh, University of Laos, uh, she was visiting and she stopped by and her, her husband was the vice minister of education for the country of Laos. You know, so we get people like that stopping by uh, or we have, you know, university groups, uh, student groups just stopping by from outside. But it's always available. And if people want to make sure that I am there, they can send me an email Mm -hmm. uh, before coming. And so um, my email is just xiong at uh, csp.edu. So very simple uh, to remember and uh, uh, easy to remember. So. Yeah, stop by and visit uh, the Center for Hmong Studies. Perfect. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time today, Li Pao, sharing your story, uh, sharing about uh, just the, the richness and uh, beauty of the Hmong culture and and uh, how much uh, that's such a part of our fabric here in the Twin Cities and, uh, and, and at CSP. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And again, Concordia has been... Uh, opening a store for the community since the 80s. And uh, this is just another uh, effort by Concordia University to make it, to make our work here at Concordia University relevant and real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we are relevant for the needs of the community and we are here and we we deliver on what we promise. So um, thank you very much for the opportunity and for the highlight of the Center for Mong Studies Bill. Thank you for listening to the One Heart Podcast. We invite you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and consider sharing with a friend. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the One Heart Podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Concordia University St. Paul. The material information presented herein is for general information purposes only. The Concordia University St. Paul name 
All forms and abbreviations are property of Concordia University St. Paul, and using them does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service.